Welcome to Fintech Insider News, your weekly go-to podcast for all things fintech and financial services. We've been downloaded in more than 150 countries and consistently top the business category in iTunes in their charts. So thank you everyone for listening. Fintech Insider is brought to you by the folks at 11FS and we believe digital banking is only 1% done. Hopefully by listening to this podcast we can get it a little bit more done, who knows. I'm Simon Taylor, and we're recording from Level 39 in London, and as you know, London is the heart of fintech. Uh, Joining me from the 11FS team, we have uh, Aidan Davis. Aidan, say hello. Hello. And of course, David Breer is back once again. David, how are you? Um, Better than I was last week. Good to hear it. Good to hear it. And of course, um, if you want to learn more about 11FS, do visit us at 11FS.com. Okay, joining us for today's analysis of the news, we have Paul Titterton, who's a managing director at Barclays. Paul, good to have you with us. How are you, sir? I'm very good, thanks. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And, of course, we've got Kadim Shudeba, the reporter of the Financial Times. A reporter, not the reporter. No, I am the only reporter at the Financial Times. You must be really busy. Very difficult job. I'm actually writing an article right now. (laughs) You, You multitask well, sir, and have many other names. Okay, uh, on with the news. Okay, and first up, uh, it's not actually a news story. Um, I want to say happy birthday to us. 11FS is now one year old. Uh, We started a year ago, as I said at the outset, believing that digital banking is only 1% finished. And for that, we assembled the team to tackle the other 99%. Thank you to our listeners, to our clients, to everybody who's been part of this amazing journey. And uh, we announced a couple of weeks ago that we've launched 11FS Pulse. We think this is the best competitor insights platform on the market. If you want to know what's happening in fintech, you should be using 11FS Pulse. So I interviewed our very own Megan and Ross to find out more. People often ask me what we do at 11FS, and uh, I say that we work with financial services clients and we help them become truly digital. One of the ways we do that is we've launched a new product we call 11FS Pulse, and the brains behind 11FS Pulse are here with me now. So I have uh, our very own Megan and Ross. Megan, Ross, good to have you with us. Hi, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hey, guys. Uh, So tell me, first up, what is 11FS Pulse? So Pulse is a digital financial services benchmarking platform where we are um, capturing and curating the very best end-to-end digital banking experiences from all around the world, covering traditional banks, but also some of the more interesting challenger and disrupting brands out there too. So when you say capturing the experience, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm looking at uh, just uh, images and text or is this a little bit more interactive? Yeah, it's much more interactive than that. So Megan and I have worked in um, financial services research for, goodness, over 10 years. And we kind of felt that, you know, the way that research services were being delivered are just not really fit for purpose uh, anymore. You know, digital banking is more experiential than ever. So what we're doing, rather than, you know, 100-page PDFs with screenshots that, you know, people can't even be bothered to open them, never mind read them anymore. What we're doing is we're capturing the end-to-end journey on real accounts and playing those back as though you're a real customer. So you can actually see behind the secure login, but seeing the real experience from end to end. So we're playing them back in in a video format where you can, you know, you can look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
So if I wanted to know what onboarding for Monza looked like or onboarding for N26 in Germany, I could search for that and I could find all of that stuff? You, you certainly could. So onboarding is, you know, we've got quite a lot of onboarding journeys in there because, you know, there's a lot of really interesting um, new experiences out there, whether it is, you know, some of the challengers, but also some of the traditional guys as well are doing some, making some great strides in KYC AML. So, yeah, you can actually see a real um, onboarding journey. You can see real video chats um, with call center agents taking photographs of ID documents or you know uploading selfies, some of the cool new experiences that are out there. And Megan, uh, tell me a little bit about what clients think about this. What are they saying, uh, people that have used the platform? There's been really positive feedback so far, Simon. Um, I think that clients are using it in two ways. One is a way to sort of go in and see what's new and exciting. I think that given the fact there's a whole lot happening in the world of digital banking and fintech, um, a lot more challenger brands, aggressive leaks, cycles from uh, banks, it's a good way for them to see uh, what's happening when the updates have happened and not having to wait uh, a few months to sort of see what their competitors are up to. And also, a lot of our clients are using it to see what's out there when they're looking to add a particular function uh, to their app or to their digital proposition. So it's a good way for them to kick off the discovery phase. I think Simon what we're also doing is we're we're kind of demystifying a lot of the the sort of the fintech and challenger propositions that are out there. So, you know, every day you kind of read about, you know, some of the cool stuff that Venmo are doing or WeChat, but it's really hard to actually, you know, see what these things are. What we're doing is we're allowing our customers to log into the Pulse platform and actually see somebody making uh, a Venmo payment or actually making a a red packet payment on WeChat so you can actually see what these things are and you know just demystifying um, you know what that's all about that's beautiful um so if people want to find out more about pulse where would they go where would they find out more yeah the best place is our website um, 11fs.com um, and in there um, you can find out all about pulse you can kind of see it in action and um, request a demo from from either myself or megan ross megan thank you very much for your time today Thank you very much to Megan and Ross. Of course, we'll hear our first 11FS Pulse Minute from Megan and Ross later in the show. That will be a regular feature from here on in. So, on with the first story of the week. And the first story is one on Crowdfund Insider, which is a publication I'd never heard of before. Um, Turns out everyone wants to be an insider these days. This one is from Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance, saying the triggering of Article 50 puts fintech at risk. David, is fintech at existential risk here in the UK? I think absolutely. I think we've been talking about this uh, pretty much every week since uh, since the the whole shenanigans kind of kicked off, didn't we? But a lot of sense been talked here by, uh, by Lawrence, I, I have to say, in terms of what the specifics that we're actually looking at. I think, you know, he makes quite salient points here that obviously the UK fintech sector relies on much more than just, um, you know, being part of Europe. But at the same time, that without the global talent and investors, as he puts it, then and remaining attractive to those in terms of what we're doing, then it, it definitely sort of puts at risk the ability to to sort of keep that um, leading position in terms of where we're at. I really found quite interesting the the points that he he made here about uh, the the UK government ensuring that we continue to develop the most progressive fintech ecosystem, and he sort of spelled out the key ingredient to that being attracting quality investors, which. Uh, was a term I thought was particularly interesting, which we actually had a uh, a fun face to face explanation in our office about fifteen minutes ago, which was, was good. But um, so yeah, I personally I still feel very very nervous about um, you know what 
this next sort of chapter with regards to Article 50 really sort of means. And I do still dramatically sort of fear that we're kind of throwing away the uh, the good work that we've done to get us to the point that we're at with regards to uh, really sort of leading the globe when it comes to a, a fintech ecosystem. I hate to use the word ecosystem, but hey, it seems apt here. Sorry, you can brush it off and just pretend it never happened. Indeed. Um, so I don't know about you guys, but um, and I know we've said a lot on this one before, but it definitely sort of feels like we're in a, uh, a back to the depression point, given the fact that we've finally signed the uh, the divorce papers, as it were. <laughs> so I, I weirdly enough, this week I didn't really have much of an emotional response to Article Fifty, and I think I just sort of, you know, baked it into my understanding of the world. It's happening, and so on and so forth. Um, and as a result. I've started to become a little bit complacent about, therefore, what Brexit means. You know, I've sort of accepted it as a reality of the world, and so <clears throat> I've stopped worrying so much. So I, I accept that maybe I'm being complacent, but I do wonder if the threat to fintech is not that large. Um, the issue with talent, the issue with people being able to come into the UK um, and start businesses, that is a key one. And that, that could, you know, in a worst-case scenario, that could... Uh, turn out very badly and people wouldn't be able to hire from Europe and so on and so forth. I don't think that worst case scenario will happen, but I agree that's the main risk. But when it comes to the other things that make you know the UK a great place for fintech, so the regulatory enthusiasm for uh, encouraging new businesses, I don't see that going away. And I also think that... Um, you know, there's a lobbying opportunity here. I mean, it's not one that I'm excited about as a journalist necessarily, um, but I imagine as an entrepreneur or um, a business person more generally, I would see it as, a, as an opportunity to, you know, shape the rules in a way that I would think would be better for my business and for innovation. And so I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I, I think if you've got, you know, smart people here, you've got regulators who want to encourage innovation. You still have the banks here. This is where I'm getting complacent because the banks might run away. But, you know, you still have a, you know, a sort of a clustering of finance in London. I think, uh, I think that, you know, fintech will be okay. It's interesting to see it as, as a lobbying opportunity, right? So there's definitely a thing where the UK government is, appears to be scrambling around for policy ideas at the moment. And now is an opportune time to say things like, how do you change the investor mix? Which I think is what Lawrence is saying in this article, because you know typically our investors have been kind of at the lower end, smaller funds, and those smaller funds are looking for returns in a very short time frame. How do you flip that to be a case where we've actually got sovereign wealth funds deploying more capital? How do we have an equivalent of our own sovereign wealth funds? How do we take all of that pension fund, um, asset management, institutional base that we have in London and deploy that in fintech with a longer time horizon? horizon so that fintech companies don't have to look to the west coast or to to the uh, far east for fintech investment and we've seen a bit of that come from corporate vcs in the past couple of years but if you're a small fintech company the funding environment at the moment is still very sort of um, it's great for seed it's okay for series a but that growth and you know kind of really becoming a a major disruptor or even just a great company is is very hard thing to do in the uk yeah, I, I, you know, I completely agree with those points. I, I don't think uh, it's like we've completely eradicated everything that made fintech in the UK great, and obviously, still the you know the FCA are doing uh, everything that they can to kind of foster that the sort of seedbed of innovation there in terms of not both within the, the banking and the insurance and kind of all of the sectors really in terms of where they uh, where they really operate. But it kind of feels like there's there's definitely um, this kind of undercurrent of imminent threat. You know, it feels like this sort of 
White Walker, you know, continued sort of thing all the way through to the end of this one. And it kind of detracts a little bit from all the other things that are kind of happening. And I, and I do feel that, well, while there's that kind of impending doom feel in terms of the drumbeat of, uh, you know, what Brexit will mean, and, and unfortunately just the lack of real clarity of what it does mean for the next couple of years, then actually talent definitely we've we've seen you know examples of talent being attracted to you know more sort of certain climates and then maybe the the more sort of refined and educated investors might be a, a little bit more concerned about really kind of establishing a, a something in the UK as it stands yeah i personally i, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm erring on the side of being more optimistic i think london's going to be remain one of the world's great cities it's going to be one of the hearts of finance for many many years to come we've got the talent here we've got the right regulatory regime i personally don't see any major change and working for barclays i know we have absolutely intention to stay here as our headquarters in london and i i think we should be more optimistic if we think and have low confidence that this is all going to be bleak and doom and gloom, then the chances are that's what's going to be the outcome, right? But I think if we can be optimistic about it, create the right environment for uh, absolute growth in, in, in this market, I think that will be the outcome. I think what is, what is interesting is, so take, for example, uh, funding for um, uh, VC in the UK. At the moment, um, London is one of the biggest beneficiaries of the uh, European Investment Fund. Um, and so obviously while you have different centers in Europe competing, you know, competing with each other, they are all in the European Union. What's going to be interesting is when the UK is outside of the European Union, there will be, you know, more, um, less, less friendly competition, right? It will be a, you know, us and them, them and us kind of thing. And that doesn't necessarily result in London getting hammered. You know, competition sometimes sharpens the mind, might, it may sharpen the mind of governments and regulators. So it may end up being good for uh, fintech in London, but I think that will be an interesting dynamic. But we, we do have quite a long history, though, of coming up with good ideas and unfortunately somebody else executing them far better than us in a, in a different geography, haven't we? So uh, I, I guess, um, well, at the moment, you know, the FCA is doing a pretty fantastic job of sort of flying a flag to show others how they can do very similar things to us. Then I'd be really interesting, like you say, at the point where it becomes a real competition, then, you know, where we'll stand then. That point about European Investment Fund is a really interesting one because what Lawrence was saying here was that uh, we need to change the mix of who's investing. And no, no sooner are we triggering, triggering Article 50 than we've got Theresa May visiting the Middle East and looking to attract sovereign wealth funds to the UK. And sovereign wealth funds have been pretty good investors in UK real estate, but actually UK tech hasn't benefited from that in the same way. And we don't have the investment history that Silicon Valley has um, or New York has. So there's definitely like a missing set of expertise and a missing time horizon. And maybe it's the pension funds, maybe it's sovereign wealth, maybe it's a mixture of those. Um, an opportunity to do that, it's a shame it's taken Brexit to do that, but actually seeing that as an opportunity, I think is, is, is truly interesting. Probably uh, timely to mention that we're actually going to be at the Innovate Finance uh, Global Summit in April recording a podcast with uh, Lawrence Wintermeyer, who was in this article. And of course, uh, Nick Ogden, who's the executive chairman at ClearBank, who I ranted about quite extensively on last week's show um, and, and think is, is particularly exciting. Uh, Richard Pears, the Director of Financial Services um, Industry at Microsoft, and John Edge, the Chairman of Identity 2020. So we're really looking forward to getting that conversation. If you want to go to the summit, uh, you can get 30% off. Uh, remember the discount code FintechInsider and you'll get yourself 30% off 
Okay, um, there's a story here, Aidan, in Parliament about the time to act on an unacceptable level of UK financial exclusion. What's going on with this? Yeah, so there was a great report put out this week by the Select Committee on Financial Inclusion, uh, and it calls on the FCA and the banks to give greater priority to tackling financial exclusion in the UK, with more than 1.7 million people in the UK without a bank account, 40% of working age population with less than £100 in savings, this report, very wide-ranging, covering a number of topics, uh, you know, the extent and nature of this exclusion, leadership from government and reg- regulation, which we just touched upon, financial education, also elements, mental health, which we've covered on this show as well. And to get more information on the report, I interviewed Anna Laycock, the Executive Director at the Finance Innovation Lab. The House of Lords Financial Exclusion Committee has this week published its report in which it asks the government, the FCA and banks to give greater priority to tackling financial exclusion. I'm lucky enough to be speaking with Anna Laycock, Executive Director at the Finance Innovation Lab about the report. Hello, Anna. Hi. So, Anna, this uh, very wide ranging report uh, and lots of great content from my initial skim through it. What can you tell us about it? Sure. I mean, yeah, it's it's a big, it's a comprehensive report. It's it's over 100 pages long and it is a very wide ranging view on the state of financial exclusion in the UK at the moment. And what the committee says, and I think say fairly, is that to, to have one of the leading financial systems in the world, some might argue the leading financial sector, and yet have 1.7 million people without a bank account and, and 40% of working age people with less than £100 in savings, that's just not acceptable. And that has to be a priority both at the policy level and, and for the regulators, but also in terms of products and services that, that banks are developing. And, and that equally applies to fintech and that through in the report. Yeah, FinTech gets several mentions in the report, not always kindly. Yeah, it's I think the the points that the report is raising, it mentions the potential of fintech and it welcomes that, but it's there are really three points around uh, the concerns with, with the role of fintech in financial inclusion. The first, which I think is probably quite a familiar argument, is around just the potential for digital channels to increase exclusion, the so-called digital by default assumption. And I think that argument has been fairly well rehearsed. The second is around actually whether fintechs are targeting the right customer groups. And there's an argument made that actually fintechs aren't targeting the people who need to be included in the financial system most. I think we'd probably take that argument slightly further and say that actually it's not just fintechs in in that box. Actually, that's true across the the financial system, that that actually there aren't huge efforts being made to build products and services that genuinely work for the most excluded groups. The third sort of area of criticism, which I think is, is a particularly important one, is around whether fintechs are building products and services that are rooted in the real needs and wants of, of the lives of the people that they're trying to serve. What kind of assumptions are we making about those people's lives? Are we trying to craft them into something that they're not in order to fit them to the product rather than fitting the product to them? I think I, I, I'm always, uh, this is feels very basic, but I'm aghast that every fintech seems to launch on iOS first. So you're, you're immediately, you're targeting a certain demographic or a certain you know, uh, wealth level. Very frustrating. Yeah, 
And I think it points to, if you like, a deeper product that's fundamental to startups full stop, which which is around actually, you know, if you look at the startup journey, you know, at the end, you generally have an exit, which is around IPO or, or someone buying you out. Now, you've, you've got a short amount of time to prove the viability of your startup. And so targeting the, the customers who are most excluded is not necessarily something that appeals to people who are driven by that end goal of sort of getting out effectively and coming out of it with a tidy um with a tidy sum and so the organizations that we work with which i guess i'll talk about in a in a minute they're actually driven by the desire to address financial health which is which is a different motivation which then influences all the decisions they make even down to things like what platform should we use and i think uh, i don't think we should say it's, it's fintech's problem to solve not at all it's certainly the uh, the big banks should be playing a role there shouldn't be this gap i guess yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I, I think, while, while we've singled out fintechs here, this is a wider problem of the financial system. And, and from the Finance Innovations Lab's perspective, it's, it's also a, a wider problem in that finance generally doesn't really serve a social purpose. It should do, but actually it's got kind of steered away from that social purpose to focus on serving itself. And what that means is that sections of society are just left out or where there are products and services for them, they don't necessarily work for their real needs. They don't necessarily make things better. Yeah. And in related news then, yeah, please do tell us more about the Finance Innovation Lab, especially around your newly announced incubation program, looking at financial health. Sure. Well, we're a registered charity. Our mission is to build a financial system that works for people and planet. The way that we do that is we find the people and the ideas that actually have the potential to to build a better system, to build a system that's more democratic, more responsible, just fairer for people. Um, our, our flagship program is the fellowship, which is a six month incubation program. And this year it's focused on financial health. It's a six month program for early stage startups. Um, we do take on more traditional channels as well as digital. And one of the things we encourage actually is collaboration between the two. What we're looking for are, are organizations that have got innovative ways to tackle financial health issues. And what we do for them is take them through a, a process of monthly workshops where they get business skills training. We teach them to coach each other. We take them away up to the Lake District and, and give them leadership development work. And that's a particularly important one because what we generally find is people who are trying to do something very different in finance. Actually, the biggest challenge is leadership and their own resilience to make it through the naysayers and, and the barriers. And we also bring in specialists, uh, so things like regulation, tech specialists, and so on. One of the things that I'm really excited about this year is that we're working with Toy be Hall, who are an anti-poverty charity in the East End of London. They work with a lot of communities who actually are experiencing either financial exclusion or exploitation or, or more widely just financial ill health. And what they are doing is bringing their expertise of what really works to this program, but also connecting the entrepreneurs on the program with their communities who can give them direct feedback on whether the products they're designing will actually work for people with lives like theirs. And so it's, it's making that direct connection between the startup and the end user to really shape the design of the product around their wants and their needs and, and their lived realities. That sounds fantastic. How can people find out more and more importantly, how 
who are you looking for to get involved and how can they get involved? Okay, so we have fairly broad selection criteria. They're on our website. What we're looking for is um, someone who is building um, a financial product that puts financial health at the core. So that's your purpose. It's not a sort of CSR add-on. The program's designed for startups, but we have had in the past and would welcome people from either more established organizations that are going through a big change or even people from, say, the big banks who want to repurpose a, a product or a service to work better. Um, for financial health. The application process is very simple. It's just an online form and then we do an interview. If you go to www.financeinnovationlab.org forward slash fellowship, you will find it. Or if you just Google financial health fellowship, we'll pop up there. Um, And we're really keen to hear from people. We're operating on a pay-as-you-can basis. So basically, this isn't a money-making exercise for us. We're doing this because we want to see better solutions for financial health in the market. So yeah, I'd really encourage anyone who who has an idea to go take a look at the site. Uh, So Anna, when does the programme application period close? It closes on the 10th of April. Anna, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Listeners, please do check it out and get involved if you can in any way, shape or form. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cool. So what do we think about this one in the room? Um, Do we we agree with the thrust of the report? Um, I I think it's obviously a, a very interesting topic. You know, you talk about financial exclusion and financial inclusion in terms of what's there. And it's actually quite a difficult one to be sort of beating up banks about i'd suggest in terms of actually getting them to to do something about it in the most sort of um immediate sense because actually it requires quite a fundamental change in probably the business models and actually the operating cost of an organization to be able to go into that type of market and really make it uh, sensible to do i can't quite put my finger on if we're asking banks to to sort of use uh, financial inclusion products as a as a loss yeah. set up that it's uh, sort of a for the greater good to kind of go into these markets or or whether the report is actually sort of trying to define that they need to um you know significantly invest in dramatically reducing their operating costs to make these guys profitable but- yeah you see that last point is a really key one right so if you could dramatically reduce your operating costs you could serve this customer base but there's a lot of organizations that can't and are just trying to get through to tomorrow and trying to deal with all of the, you know, it feels like staying in business is hard. It feels like keeping everything, you're keeping, um, 12, 18 million customers going is, is, is a hard thing to do. So I, I think it sort of plays into that weird tension that we're in at the moment where it's like, Hey guys, you know, be more innovative, but raise your share price, but serve a whole different customer base. You know, it's kind of, we're giving very, um, very mixed messages to, you know, large banking organizations in terms of what their sort of strategic imperatives really are. So The two sort of headline numbers just at the start of the report, one is, uh, you know, 1.7 million people don't have a bank account. And the second one is that lots of people don't have uh, savings. And I'm sort of in that group of people. I get paid every month and then I spend all that money and then I get paid the next month and then I spend that money. And one day I'll, you know, I have a pension, right? So that's my one lucky thing that I have. So... The question about why people don't have savings is a very simple one. It's because they don't have money. Um, and you can educate people to, you know, spend in different ways. But I think actually that's the sort of key thing. You know, if I had more money, I would save some more. But this question about why people don't have bank accounts and then sort of linked to that is why is credit so expensive for people who have the least money? I think you're totally right. The business models, um, or the assumptions about what we want, um, banks to do has to change. 
And I, I mean, I don't, I don't have that much sympathy for them on this issue because, you know, the structure of products like overdrafts is, you know, it's simply if you don't have money, you will pay the most. You know, the fact is on my overdraft up to a thousand, it's 75p and then after a thousand, it's a pound 50. So it doesn't matter whether I've gone over by five pound or 950 pound, I'm paying 75p every single day. Now there are reasons why it's, you know, done like that, you know, that my bank could make good arguments about why they have to structure it that way. But it does seem that from a sort of public policy point of view or a how do we want the poorest people to be treated, there's obviously an issue there. And how you solve that issue, I suspect, is you need the government to intervene and start ordering people about. But I do think it's a real issue. And, you know, I count myself very lucky to not have to be borrowing each and every month, you know, a great deal. I certainly think that uh, technology is going to enable um, banking to be opened up to more people than maybe have it today. And secondly, I think technology will enable people to understand what's going on with their finances maybe better than what happens today. But having access to a transactional bank account, I think, is essential to uh, the population, accessing benefits, housing, employment, et cetera, et cetera. And I think uh, working with a traditional bank, um, I think we've done a great deal to provide that service to anybody. We're really committed to providing a basic bank account to any customer, regardless of whether they meet a credit score, have a credit score, have a poor credit score. We will provide a basic bank account to anybody that requires one. So that, that's our commitment, and we really take our role seriously within that. Yeah. But I, I think the point, yeah. though, about the cost, the underlying cost, it, it, is still there. And I don't know that regulators saying you have to do it solves that. I think there's an, an imagination gap. That's but I, I'm not but I sure it comes from the regulators. I'm not sure the regulator necessarily gets the the sort of chicken and egg scenario in that though to a certain degree. So if it's if it's costing you 110 pounds, 120 pounds to to run a current account for the year, and and obviously you're you're not going to be in a situation if you're changing all of the the sort of fee structures that we're, we're sort of talking about to to make the the sort of connection that you would want to, other than potentially going into credit or lending products, which obviously. Uh, to your point, it, it feels like it um, starts to be a bit of a, a kind of a bear trap into cycle of debt. Really, I do sympathise with the banks here because I, I kind of do feel like this is this is something that's being asked of them that is actually incredibly difficult to to yeah. deliver. Um, because actually, the the thing that is required from a financial inclusion perspective is much more sophisticated digital services that actually aid people to make better decisions. So, you know, the idea of just giving everybody a current account in the way that a current account exists today doesn't fix the problem. Um, and, and the idea within the report around the, uh, the education and the, uh, you know, not wanting to point it to anybody in the room, but maybe putting a little bit of money away every month <laughs> might be a good idea. But then um, I would drink less beer every month and, that wouldn't be good. How else would you feel writing it? Exactly. All the articles for the FT. Indeed. <laughs> so, so I think it's a, it's a really difficult ask, but it's obviously one that, um, you know, we, I, I definitely sort of believe that we should be facing into. Fintech in its broadest sense can really sort of help with this. So, you know, both in terms of the, you know, the, the traditional sort of view of how the customer experience can potentially be increased at the front end. But then when you start looking at back end systems, you know, 
uh, core banking systems like Mambu have been created to um, support financial services organizations to be created in Africa, you know, and actually, if you're doing that, you need your cost to serve to be so low that it actually makes sense to be providing those services. So, um, you know, I think new technology and new thinking kind of all the way through the stack is is really what's needed to to kind of actually have a proper attempt at fixing it. Alrighty, so next story up is one in The Economist um, saying an earthquake is coming to European banking. And that earthquake is called PSD2 and measures, what, 8.4 on the Richter scale? Is a picture of people be more scared about this one? I, I, I think um, certainly something that I'm starting to hear about from our clients. David, what are, what are your thoughts here? Um, I love the fact that this is called a new payments regulation when we've been talking about PSD2 for the best part of most of my life, what it feels like. <laughs> I don't think there's anything really new on this, if, if I'm honest with you, in terms of where we're, where we're going. I, I haven't read um, anything in this that makes me feel like there's a new, particularly new perspective in it. But uh, it's interesting that it's starting to make um, you know more mainstream media that uh, The Economist is picking up on such a potential significant shift in actually what it means although the the sort of portrayal of the big fat banks are, is is kind of a little bit sort of old-fashioned should we say in terms of they uh, do love a cheeky animation they do they? yeah they're good good little sort of but if it's uh, in the does it mean it's finally becoming c-suite conversation because oh my god new scary regulation is gonna hit in three months it's like that's about the time that the board should be finally paying attention right i mean this, that's how these things go well not <laughs> not really not if you want to make the deadline oh, that oh, would be the yeah, uh, that. that would be the thing i think if you if you probably haven't already spent a lot of time thinking about it you might have left it too late to do anything other than meet the bare minimum that you actually have to do which is a bit worrying so well, it's if, risky isn't it because if you think about the what meeting the minimum means it means that like maybe you've just finally put some apis out there but now your systems are exposed to hundreds of thousands millions of more transactions a day and can your systems handle it well that's the thing if you're only going to do the minimum that means somebody's doing it to you rather than you doing it to other people right mm-hmm. um so yeah i think it's a a, a Sort of an interesting one again that it's kind of hitting mainstream news that uh, PSD two is is going to be um, sort of fundamentally potentially shifting the way that uh, customers interact with them. But uh, but again, nothing particularly new in here. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat as yourself. Uh, nothing particularly new. Feel like we've been talking about this for a very long time, certainly uh, in Barclays. And um, I'm not sure I agree with the thrust of the article. If I'm going to be honest, I, I see the whole regulatory approach as a as a positive and an opportunity within the marketplace. Um, if we just think about the regulatory regime, I think that's been one of the key drivers about bringing so many great, talented people, creative people, an entrepreneurial spirit into the financial services sector that might not have done that if it hadn't been for the regulatory uh, conditions that we've got. And uh, I see it as an opportunity, be it for a fintech or a main bank, to create new business models, new products, better client experiences. And ultimately, I think the customers are going to win from this. As a journalist, really excited and looking forward to all of this happening because things might not be shaked up as much as people are expecting potentially, but I'm quite interested to see how um, how banks approach it and what new sort of products suddenly spring up. Because um, I do agree, it seems to me, um, and I, you know, I don't run a bank, so I don't know what the thinking is, but I'd be looking at this and thinking, I could steal my you know, the other bank's customers, right? If I get ahead of this, um, I could start picking off, you know, customers from my rivals. So um, I'll be, you know, quite interested to see how it comes out. Absolutely. It's all about who's going to execute best. And I'm intrigued to see if, if it happens and when. That, that, that deadline day is flimsy. 
It's definitely on shaky ground like an earthquake. And when it happens, does what gets delivered become so watered down by some of the organizations in the market that you've actually not got anything that you can really work with or, or that you've got something that you could work with if you jump through six months of hoops and you get through procurement and you can run through all of these compliance hoops and, and there's a bunch of spreadsheets, et cetera, et cetera. Like it feels to me that this becomes, I, I've been saying for a while and I know regular listeners will be sick of this, but it feels more like account switching than it does like genuine innovation. So sort of uh, after account switching comes along, account switching actually goes down, not up, but the industry spent 800 million on the thing. There are a few banks that are exceptions to this. There are some very large banks that I think are doing amazing things and are trying to get on the front front and are trying to deliver good APIs. And then there's stuff coming from the, the fintech sector. There's the Monzos, the Starlings, the Tandems, who all have great API offerings. Um, so I, I've, I retain some hope for this, but I just think it's it's not going to be as scary as people think it is. But at the same time, um, over time, you can't help but think, this is going to be a thing. Like it's going to be real. So to, to Kadim's point, it's, it's going to be interesting to sit back and look at this in two years' time and see what did come of it. Next story: Gizmodo has a uh, five reasons why the Home Secretary's proposed encryption ban is aggressively stupid. What I love about this article is the idea that anybody who's ever worked with computers or has any knowledge about technology is absolutely baffled, perplexed, and terrified of the uh, encryption ban. Because encryption, whilst it may be something that uh, is a, a tad inconvenient from uh, a perspective of trying to catch some, some criminals doing some nasty things, is also absolutely crucial to protecting customer data, to protecting just about how everything works on the internet. David, you really enjoyed this article. Were some highlights in there from it? I did. Um, I have to say it was a rather entertaining read. Unfortunately, um, all of this comes from a pretty sad origin, which is the attack that took place in London, uh, what feels like a long time ago. Was that last week? Um, so only a, only a week ago now. But um, the reaction, unfortunately, to from our government and particularly in this instance, the Home Secretary, who sort of sounds like she wasn't the best prepared to go on the Andrew Marr show, which for anybody who's listening globally is a politics show on a Sunday afternoon that my mum watches. In short, basically, Rudd effectively called for a ban on all encryption, which, as you say, Simon, is not only rather nonsensical for anybody who knows anything sort of vaguely about the internet, but uh, but also just really sort of underestimates the idea that Basically, if we banned WhatsApp encryption, that no terrorism would ever take place. It just seems like a, a very sort of um, they, they cut from the beginning to the end of the book and didn't read anything in the middle. So uh, I don't know about anybody else, but um, I could probably go on for quite a long time on this one. I'm, I'm going to be the tiniest bit contrarian. And it's terrible because I'm new. No, one other person is wearing a suit in this room. Um, and I'm from the FT and people will be like, oh, the idiot from the FT doesn't understand encryption, blah, blah, blah. But that's okay. So that's not what I'm saying. I do agree with basically everything that's written here. I do agree that um, Amber Rudd came across, you know, you know, not like she really understood technology on the show. But I do think sometimes when we talk about uh, this issue, it's sort of hard to have to really talk about what's actually going on, right? So the first thing is, I would say is, there is, there is already legislation that the government passed to force, uh, people decrypt stuff, um, like companies and so on. They haven't used it yet, to my knowledge. Um, and I suspect they, the reason why they haven't used it is because, you know, they'd just be an all out war sort of going on over it. Um, and so I suspect they sort of say these things and, and try and to apply pressure and sort of in the media. Mm-hmm. 
you know, even if they don't reach for the, the, the tool that they already have in law. The second thing is the fact that we have consumer messaging apps um, that are end-to-end encrypted. So while I understand the arguments for it, and I agree with them, I don't think people who question this new phenomenon are idiots. You know, you can you can question the existence of a, va- a easily available um, end-to-end encrypted messaging apps and still go, well, yes, I do think banks should have you know be able to use end-to-end encryption. And and you could even arguably say, well, you could tackle it. You could specifically ban you know encrypted messaging apps on the app store. You could make Apple do that, and you'd still have encryption everywhere on the internet. You would narrow the amount of people using encrypted communications. I don't think you should, you know, for privacy reasons, for uh, liberty reasons. But if I'm in the intelligence services or if I'm in government, I don't think I'm being technologically illiterate by making that argument. Well, and precisely that's the point, that, that you're not getting that nuanced message coming out here at all. The message that's coming out is this um, kind of bludgeon uh, towards any encryption, and that's really terrifying. So somewhere the message is getting mixed up or the message is lacking so much nuance that because i think if it was articulated in the way that you described people would go that kind of sucks for all the reasons you say like the lack of liberty the lack of privacy but i can kind of understand it but the implication of having existing legislation that can require any company in that operates in the united kingdom to open up its encryption with a back door is really really bad and to your point they could never seriously enact that because they would be causing chaos if they did it so they've put something into legislation that they can never use they've created then a story on the back of some harrowing events to try and enforce that um, legislation to be used in the mind of the public more and yet it's still a chocolate teapot it's still useless because it lacks that precision so isn't the issue here that we need people that understand it at least communicating it if not um, trying to but then is that a specific angle that they've taken they go on and they explain it in a way that experts laugh at but the electorate might it sounds completely reasonable to them they they will say terrorists will do everything pedophiles will do i don't care we just need to fix that problem and it in some ways it's a masterful piece of communication really and times of you know this i think arguably we should be we should be comforted by the fact that amber rudd is the messenger right because she hasn't done a good job of you know explaining it in a sort of reasonable way. I mean, I take your point that maybe the bludgeon approach sort of gets through to um, the wider population. Um, but I, you know, I, I would worry if you had someone who was making this argument in a more sort of coherent way, because I don't think people in general see the benefit of these kinds of things. Um, I, people in general, I don't think buy the liberty argument or the privacy argument. Um, but I do certainly think they buy the, I want to stop terrorism. It's madness at, a, at an age where we've got the Russians confirmed that they hacked the US and probably interfered with the election, hence the sanctions. We've got North Korea now being held up as probably state-sponsored hack of the uh, Bangladeshi bank. You put in these back doors, they they will not be hidden. These back doors will be found, they will be used by people far smarter than Amber Rudd and and potentially far smarter than GCHQ, and that is, like you say, it's the whole kind of digital society kind of collapses? I, I think that's that's the thing. I, I don't necessarily argue with the sentiment that why do you need this to a certain degree? Although there are, I'm sure there's 
a bunch of people sending pictures around the internet to each other that feel a little bit more comfortable that those uh, interesting pictures are being encrypted and not interfered with. But the idea that um, this is enforceable is usually is the bit that I kind of find most bizarre about this because most of these companies are not based in the UK. So the idea that the UK government would have any power to enforce WhatsApp or like Apple or Google or any of these guys to put any sort of backdoor into any of these systems, I just don't think they've got the the ability to to sort of push that and, and really sort of make it happen. And the overarching point of this is that it'll be a deterrent for terrorism. And just the idea that WhatsApp is like a hotbed for terrorism just doesn't feel like it's the really sort of, um, you know, conveying what it is. If it wasn't that tool, it would be one of 500 others yeah, that could easily be pushed further. Up. Like, that's the thing. So why not have it in something that's mainstream that at least you can start to track through ISPs and you can get some metadata on? Like The bit that I don't understand, though, is if they were using, how, how have they made the connection that this guy was using WhatsApp? I think it was the Sun, um, or maybe a different publication, that managed to, I assume, speak to someone who had um, the uh, attacker's phone number. Right. And so when you look him up on WhatsApp, it said last active at two something p.m. immediately before the attack. And that's some of the good points that came out. You know, the powers that they already have. You know, they've got all the metadata. GCHQ can hack into the phone. You know, they can they can intercept communications. There's a lot of powers that they already have. Maybe not as good after the fact, but again, well, it's incro. It's, I, I'm, I'm totally, totally again, encroaching on privacy. Again, then, would it have prevented it? You know, if they'd have been using iMessage, would it have made a difference in terms of doing it? I just don't believe it would. Yeah, I agree, David. Anyways, um, we've done this one to death, so let's move on to the next story, which is uh, from BBVA, and I think this one was on CoinDesk. Um, so BBVA, um, the Spanish bank, has joined the Hyperledger open source blockchain community, which is pretty interesting because Hyperledger is the one that's run by the Linux Foundation, Linux being the operating system that most servers in big organizations run on. Um, truly open source in the traditional sense. So interesting that BBVA is another bank that's joining an open source community. Take the word blockchain out of that altogether. This is a shift in how banks see the development of future software. And banks have been very good consumers of open source, but for the first time, they're starting to uh, starting to use it. So I spoke to Carlos Kachowski, the CTO of New Digital Business at BBVA, to learn more. I'm here with Carlos, the CTO of New Digital Business at BBVA. Carlos, thank you for being on FinTech Insider News. Thanks, Carlos, for inviting me. Carlos, uh, I saw that BBVA joined the Hyperledger project, and as BBVA are members of the R3 Consortium and Enterprise Ethereum, what do you think being in uh, Hyperledger gives you, and uh, and, and what, what, what led to the uh, decision to, to join Hyperledger? We in our strategy of DLT or blockchain, we are trying to be in the main consortium, consortium to try to learn and also to try to participate because we are not sure now who is going to be the standard winner. So we prefer to test and learn in different uh, in different places. Around hyperlayer for us is super interesting for main three reasons. The one is multi-industry. We want to learn and also uh, work with other industries. Is under Linux Foundation, and for for us, it's super important this, this governance, and also is is working and playing with different technologies, of, uh, with Corda from R3, with Ethereum that also is in Ethereum Enterprise Alliance, with Fabric for EVN, and other providers, another open source technology, and they are mixing all this. 
That's very true. I mean, for those in the financial services industry that aren't familiar with the Linux Foundation, this is uh, the organization, of course, behind uh, the Linux operating system. The, the, uh, because Linux now powers much of financial services with Red Hat software and so on. Uh, so it's really interesting that um, we're seeing the rise of open source, uh, especially in something that's truly multi-industry. Uh, like like this, as you say. So um, do you see that something like um, Hyperledger and open source is a trend that financial services is, is ready to embrace and we're going to see more of this? I'm sure about that. We'll, we'll meet in it, uh, what's happening in other, in other banks and financial companies. In my opinion, it's super important and we have examples in other industries to, uh, to learn and to start working on their open, uh, open source. Open source is not free. There are different uh, licenses and different models to work. But this is the way to work in this new age of collaboration. For example, I think another hot topic that we need to learn how to work in, a, in, in open source ways is artificial intelligence. It's interesting that blockchain and DLT has a lot of collaboration by default, but uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning are out there. And actually, we probably need to have the same level of collaboration around those subjects and, and the crossover of the two, uh, especially when we're talking about end-to-end customer journeys that data is about getting access to data across industries and then you can finance it better. And indeed, blockchain is about having uh, trust across industries and being able to build new financial products. Where do you see the role for um, blockchain and DLT into end-to-end customer journeys? You mentioned multi-industry, but do you have any examples in mind? Well, a lot of people now and a lot of effort in around DLT and blockchain are in the back office trying to reinvent or rebuild the investment bank uh, system and not we cannot. We don't see a lot of things about the end customer. I think that in the same way that the end customer don't know that they are using TCP/IP, they are not going to know that they are using maybe blockchains. But we are going to start watching crypto wallet uh, application, P2P economy application that are, are going to work on the over of a smart contract and blockchain. And the people don't need to know. They need to know that it's secure and it's better, and you can create better programs. That makes perfect sense. If you ever watched the videos from the uh, early 90s of explaining the internet, it seems very familiar to some of the videos I'm seeing on blockchain lately. Carlos, uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider News. Hi, thanks a lot for your time. Okay, thank you very much to Carlos. Um, Karim, do you have any thoughts on this one? Sadly, not. Uh, anything that's deeply sort of uh, insightful. However, I did um, recently get to sort of see Hyperledger in action. I went to a sort of blockchain training day run by Decoded, which was fun. It was actually quite interesting because I'd never actually seen someone demonstrate, you know, the idea of a product and how it would be used, you know, seeing the software in use and so on and so forth. And it kind of, it made a, it made a slight connection for me that I hadn't had, hadn't been made before. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my learning more about blockchain recently story. It's worthwhile getting some demos of what this thing looks like. If you get the opportunity, Hyperledger and Corda, they all do lots of events. And as do the Ethereum guys, I would uh, get down to those and see what they're doing. Alrighty, we've got a sponsorship break and a little uh, section that uh, is all about uh, what's happening with FinTech Insights from Pulse this week. Over to the sponsors. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. 
Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. 11FS Pulse Update. Hi, this is Ross from 11FS. And this is Megan from 11FS. In today's edition of 11FS Pulse, we want to talk about an app from ABN AMRO in the Netherlands called Grip. Megan, what's Grip? Grip is an app that's the result of a partnership between ABN AMRO and Swedish firm Tink. Now, Tink, we've heard of them before. Who are they? They're a Swedish firm, uh, a fintech that focuses on PFM and account aggregation. Interestingly, uh, ABN AMRO and SCB have both invested in Tink. And so what is it that users of ABN AMRO's Grip app can actually do? Well, there's a whole lot of stuff they can do in the app. It focuses on telling the customers what their transactions have been over given points. What's really cool about Tink is that they use a timeline approach. So when customers are in the app, they can view their biggest outgoing, their biggest incoming. They can also set up budgets, and the UI is just fantastic. So the presentational style is almost like a social network, like your Facebook feed or Twitter. Exactly. Very nice. Thanks very much for that, Megan. If listeners want to find out more and actually see this app in action, where should they go? They can head over to our website at 11fs.com and look up 11fs Pulse. On there, you can play back this and hundreds of other end-to-end digital banking journeys from both traditional and challenger brands from all around the world. Okay, thanks for the update. Uh, Megan and Ross, great insight on the power of partnerships between banks and fintechs. Next story is one from uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so there's a one here from Paul, who we have in the room with us, about making people a competitive advantage in a digital age. So people aren't just obsolete, Paul? Well, that's my, that's my hope and my theory. Um, you know, I've been responsible for leading businesses dominated by scores of frontline-facing colleagues for probably the best part of the last 10 years of my career. And I'm a firm believer that scale adoption of a lot of the technology that you guys talk about regularly on this podcast is fundamentally changing the way that relationships are built between customers and financial service providers. But given this context and given my responsibility, I've sort of got a burning question that I've been trying to ask myself and answer, which is, um, you know, what is going to be the role of those frontline-facing colleagues in the future? Are they doomed to becoming less and less relevant, or is there an opportunity? And um, I'm sure you've seen from the article, my belief is that uh, people possess some pretty unique qualities that customers value that should become, could become a genuine source of competitive advantage if harnessed correctly. And I think the key is for them to be crucially working to augment the digital experience, not working in isolation from it. And, uh, you know, those kind of key skills or human attributes that I believe are valuable in building relationships that machines find difficult to replicate are things such as empathy and reassurance, creativity, passion. They're things that no matter how good your CX, uh, your your design is, I think it's difficult for machines to replicate. So, you know, you guys have talked about the fact that the digital transformation is only 1% done. Well, I'd argue that there's an equally sizable 
challenge on the human side of the equation and uh, banks have got to work hard to transform what it is that colleagues do if they are going to become a genuine source of competitive advantage. But uh, it's a, a, an interesting area that is under-talked, or it's not talked about. Yeah, so can you give me an example of the kind of thing somebody might do today and what they might do tomorrow if they were demonstrating more empathy or if they had more autonomy, or, or what might that look like? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So, um, you know, for, for years, I think, basically, people within front lines have been trained to follow process, right? And that's, you could argue, served banks reasonably well. But now I think increasingly what frontline colleagues are faced with is dealing with the not the routine, the complex. So in order to be able to do that, you've got to step outside a process. You've got to be able to empathise with the customer, understand what they're trying to do, and be able to have the autonomy to be able to put that back right. So, you know, good examples, are, I think, are, are an area that uh, we all kind of uh, recognise in the industry is around financial crime. Uh, customers that have been the victim of financial crime um, are at a point where they're, um, you know, worried, concerned, I think it's quite often the colleague intervention, if they can provide that reassurance, they can put whatever it is the customer needs uh, to get them back to where they were with their with their banking, but provide that reassurance, be a good listening ear, give them the confidence that that issue has now been resolved and the customer can get on with their lives. I think that's a crucial role for a colleague to do. And maybe we've not focused on that enough within uh, financial services in, in, in the past. It seemed to be an industry-wide thing. It's an interesting, interesting idea. Any thoughts from the room on this one? Yeah, I think it's one affecting not just banking, but much broader than that. Anywhere where it's sort of a service industry, really, I think that the, this dynamic is is really sort of changing and everybody's getting quite um, fearful about what we're all going to be doing in five years' time when the robots have taken over and we're not doing anything. But um, I don't really believe in that, um, you know, that fully sort of augmented world. And, and, and actually it really sort of resonated with me that actually it's uh it's about freeing up people's time to do the things that really add value to customers exactly as you say and moving to a point where we're really making each of those experiences that you can actually have with a customer the best that it can be rather than moving to an interface which is purely digital now we definitely believe that you know digital is definitely at the heart of everything that we're doing but the interfaces with those services could be a human being in the same way as it, it could be an app or a, a website or a, a, you know alexa or whatever it might be so i i kind of completely agree with the article and uh, thought it was a really good read yeah thank you I'm excited about what AI could deliver, but I think the narrative around it is so boring at the moment. Just like, oh, it's going to replace those jobs. Yeah. Chatbots are going to replace. And you think, well, you know, IVRs didn't work out so great for customers, and you, you then you're going to you're going to then further abstract them from humans. That I, I agree, there should be digital services that help. You know, that I can be empowered to solve my own problem. But sometimes you need somebody to speak to. You need somebody who's trained, who's got empathy, etc. I think we're a long way off that with chatbots. I, I, I completely agree. I think the way I'm trying to think about this is that um, within a banking relationship, the human element of that is going to become a scarce resource. You know, the routine, the, uh, the, the numerous transactions that you'll, or interactions you'll have with a bank will maybe probably be through digital channels, but the scarce uh, interaction will be with a human being. So if you're gonna, if that's gonna be scarce, then you've got to look after it and nurture it and make sure it delivers on the value. Right. And we're also starting to see. I think it was Wealthfront who announced recently where they're they're starting to make humans more premium. Yeah. So they're saying, well, you've got this this robo advisor down here, but for a real premium service, you're gonna get a human. So it's like a, a weird <laughs> shift where we're talking about AI kind of augmenting humans' capabilities, but. 
if a really great service comes to this great human and that's an in- again that's an interesting yay humans <laughs> we're not going to be obsolete I think it's a like an interesting moment of truth thing I was um, speaking at a FCA event about insurance this week actually and and the idea that uh, automation and AI can replace the claims process you know the minute I crash my car is not the minute I'm going to be pulling out an app to try and talk to a bot yeah. to tell them I've smashed my car up you know I kind of want to be talking to a person who can exactly like you say give me an element of of empathy over the the situation I guess the you know the leaps that we sort of start to take in that really is about my car knowing it's had a, an accident and then alerting the authorities or or telling my insurance but still I want somebody to ring me and ask me if I'm okay Often the problem with human interactions mm-hmm. is that they can be difficult, right? And so if I just had a crash and then I'm going to phone someone up, I may not be in a good mood, right? And that's going to make that a difficult conversation. Um, and you can do customer relations incredibly well, but it's hard to do them incredibly well. Yeah. Um, you have A, you have to be willing to spend the money, um, which not every business is willing to do. And you have to make sure that the culture is right. Which is much more, which is much harder still. Um, I think like an interesting case study in the UK is Metrobank. Um, I wrote a few articles about them um, before they IPO'd looking at the business model. But when you look at the, the way they've built the culture, it's kind of, um, I don't know, like fanatical, right? They, they, it, from top to bottom, it is all we care about is customers, like in a sort of Borg-like way. And it's hard to recreate that culture. And so given that, I can easily see, say, for example, in an insurance claim process, well, I have my insurer, they have an app. If I have a car crash, maybe I'm not going to you know, be talking to a chatbot, but there might be something, well, there's a series of steps that I need to do that helps build my claim, like you know, make sure you take all the photos on this digital car, point out where the damage is, and so on and so forth. So you can actually, you, you can possibly do a better job of making those interactions good um, with automation than you can with the much, much, much more difficult job of, making sure all your employees are being nice all the time, which is hard, right? <laughs> well, any scale, it's always, always about consistency, isn't it? And the you know least consistent thing is generally humans. But um, but definitely I think there's there's interesting ways of bringing that warmth through that, isn't it, even if it's a digital experience? There was, there was three brilliant tweets earlier this month from Tom Goodwin. You might not know who he is, but he coined the phrase... Uh, the largest taxi company in the world owns no cars, the largest yeah, hotel. I saw that, yeah. So yeah, very famous quote, which I've seen massively, massively overused. He said, bots, no better way to tell customers and prospective customers that their time is less important than yours. Uh, related, I will re- literally never understand how serving customers is a cost, but advertising to customers is an investment. We spend billions in the hope that customers want a conversation with brands, and in the rare moment that we do, we consider it too expensive. And I think that is... There's something to think really hard yeah. about that balance between automated, mm. you know, versus I, again, I, genuinely helpful. The, the way I, I, I kind of see things is I think automation is brilliant for the routine that, that you can undertake in your own time, but sometimes the complex, the unusual, it's difficult to automate. As difficult it is to get a kind of provide a great service through culture and people, I think that's what people want in those moments. Uh, and I, I'm a firm believer there's still a a role for humans in providing great customer experience. There's got to be. There you go. Humans, you're not obsolete yet. The uh, the robot overlords, we welcome them, but uh, they're not going to take your, all of your jobs just yet. So, certainly if Paul has anything to, to say about it anyway. Alrighty, so we've got to move on because that could be a whole um, topic in itself and, and maybe we should look at that at some point because it's a super interesting topic. And, of course, Jason's joined us in the room. Jason, Hello. how are you, sir? I'm good. 
<laughs> Good to have you back. Only a couple more stories to go, Aidan, and there's one here in VentureBeat uh, where the uh, payments company Square launches in the UK, which is its first European market and its fifth globally. And, of course, Square being the famous for being a payment acceptance company co-founded by Jack Dorsey, the co-founder of Twitter. Uh, he's now gone back to Twitter. So what's going on with Square here? Is this, like, too little too late? Is there more happening? I, th- I think that's – well, that's my certain feeling. I don't know what the feeling is in the room. Is is it too little, too late? Um, obviously, there's iZettle, PayLeaven, mm-hmm. PayPal's offering. I don't know. It just feels a bit like yeah, me too. Play in company yeah. expansion. I think they they could have really killed it a few years ago, but yeah. now it's um, iZettle seems to be everywhere. Exactly, and I'm not sure how well adopted those those things are. But they they're just they're just they're commodity items. They're sold everywhere. My partner runs a small business. And the trade shop that she goes to buy supplies from, you know, there's there's, multi, there's a multitude of these card that offers, you know, like 20 quid just to start taking payments. I'm intrigued. I think outside of our fintech world, how many people really know who Square are, tough, I think it's a tough challenge. So it's a shame because um, Square were the original fintech. I remember reading about this in 2009 and kind of running up and down in the company I'm working for going, hey, I think this is a theme here. There's going to be a thing. And everyone going, shh, it's a crazy person. Um, but actually... Square were the ones that everybody got excited about. They did an amazing thing. You know, they added a card reader to a smartphone. It was amazing. Mike Stripe limited it massively, which meant, you know, they couldn't launch in chip and pin markets. And they, they got like a, I think they got up to a billion in turnover merchant-wise pretty quickly in the US. But like you say, I think European players have caught massively. Um, Wasn't all of the the kind of rumours around why Apple got rid of the headphone jack to screw over people like this anyway? It wasn't like like that. uh, How how dare you build a hardware ecosystem on our phone without us taking a massive cut? So how are they doing it now then, just our interest? Is it plugging? So they've actually pivoted towards doing more like full point of sale systems. Now Apple pays in. They're, They're kind of doing the iPad in store that we're seeing a lot of companies do like Point and several others. So if you're a small business, how do you manage all of your ERP? So your inventory, your stock taking, your accounting and integration and all that sort of stuff. So they've moved into being the really great experience for a merchant that's running their first shop or one restaurant or starting to open a chain and, and to kind of growing from the bottom. I still find it very weird that Jack Dorsey, the Square CEO, is in London. And you sort of think, no, no, this guy's meant to be running Twitter. What on earth is he doing in London launching this small business um, payment like uh, venture? Um, I, just, I, still, I still think one of the oddest things in the tech industry is that this guy runs Square and Twitter at the same time. And it feels to me like neither of them ever got the massive momentum they were supposed to get. Right, Twitter found its niche, found its community. It's got a small, hardened group of, well, small, hardened, like 300-some-odd million people that just love it to death and, and will never leave it, but never really became the mainstream monster that Snapchat or Facebook became. Uh, similarly, Square stayed quite regional, very well-liked, Great business from the, some of the investors, from the early stage investors' perspective. But you know, some of the people that came in, in later stages actually took a down round when it IPO'd. So it, was, um, it lost half its value at IPO. Um, so there's, there's definitely uh, something there. Yeah, but still, uh, IPO was valued at 2.9 billion. So yeah, you know, it's not a bad valuation. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a startup that did that badly. You know, uh, <laughs> well, that's why I say as, a, as an early investor. <laughs> as an early investor, sure. As a late investor that bought in at double that valuation, I wouldn't feel. 
Yeah, that's true. I, I saw there was an article on TechCrunch about it from earlier in the year saying that they actually looked at buying iZettel as a way of getting into the European market. So obviously they changed their mind there and decided to go directly. But without a differentiation in pricing or approach or some beachhead to actually launch the service, it's difficult to see how that would work. I think, like Simon says, their their wider square register or whatever it's called now, it's changed its name, hasn't it? But yeah, if they can get a, a foothold in some of the businesses... And then they're seeing the data and then they've got a whole like analytics business that they sell around that. Like that small merchant segment is criminally underserved by the large um, acquiring organizations um, and and acquiring banks. So like the products are really aimed at the massive retailers, the Walmarts, the Tescos, the the, that sort of retail. They're not aimed at the small businesses. So it's segment market segmentation. It's the classic PayPal play. It's a nice business, but I I don't know that it's... um, it's huge. Alrighty, um, coming into the uh, the final straight here, we've only got a couple more stories. There's one here on a, a publication called Barons, which uh, does have a bit of a registration wall. I think it is free, uh, but you can check it out. Uh, really interesting article about uh, Alibaba and Tencent and the comic fintech boom. Now, what's interesting here is that they're talking about a piece from JP Morgan where they're calling uh, the e-commerce opportunity that both Tencent and Alibaba have in front of them has a 65 billion dollar upside and could increase their current valuations by 60 percent this these are phenomenal numbers now i know this is our you know like uh, alibaba segment of the week that we always do and we really do need a jingle for that but <laughs> but oh my god is that not the biggest set of numbers you've seen? And so there's definitely something where people are concerned about China. There was worries about its economy a couple of years ago. But from a fintech perspective, China has been the story for a while. And, and stories like this really make it the story. Does anybody have um, any other comments they want to add to this one? Because to me, it just my mind boggles at some of these numbers. and I'm struggling to see see between the lines here and anything else going on. I, I think it's very odd that this article does not mention any of the big fintech players in China. I mean, it sort of says, well... Alibaba and Tencent will uh, capture all this market share, but there are there's it's such an incredible um, space in China. There are so many extremely fastly growing uh, lenders, um, which you know are vaguely called P2P, but they are not P2P in the proper sense. I completely agree with that. I think the the article seems to assume just that uh, Tencent and Alibaba is going to capture sixty percent of that market without any competition in there at all which is quite interesting so you know for anybody who's over there thinking about starting a startup now would be the time you know there's a bloody great big opportunity there and uh, i'm sure uh, i'm sure there must be some opportunities being missed right without question Alrighty, so i spoke to james lloyd who's the asia pacific fintech leader for ernst and young Great. So I'm here with James Lloyd, the a fintech practice lead for Asia Pacific in Ernst & Young. Uh, James, we're going to need to get you your own jingle. You've been back on the show a whole bunch of times. Great to have you with us on Fintech Insider News. How are you keeping? Uh, I'm actually doing even better now that I hear I'm going to get my own jingle. That would be that would be quite a, a bonus. So looking forward to that for my next appearance. <laughs> uh, there's a story that uh, was in a publication called Barron's that's based on a report by JP Morgan uh, claiming that uh, both Alibaba and Tencent are set to capture the lion's share of a $65 billion e-commerce opportunity and see a 60% upside in their share price. Um, I wondered if you had any insights into is this likely to happen? What's really going on here? Uh, how big is the e-commerce opportunity? That sort of thing. Sure. So 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I read the article and indeed I actually read the, um, the JP Morgan analyst report on which it's based, which I would highly recommend uh, for anyone who wants to get a better sense of what's happening in China, e-com and fintech. It was a really excellent, extremely detailed report. But I guess as regards the article, the first thing that stood out for me is, is the subheading around China's two big e-commerce companies. Um, because I guess, you know, we don't necessarily consider uh, Tencent an e-commerce company. Of course, Alibaba is, is very well known. Um, you know, it, it accounts for over half of online shopping in China. And, and I, last I heard about 80% of mobile shopping in China uh, from an e-com perspective. And then e-com itself accounts for, for maybe, you know, 14 or 15% of the overall retail market there. So Alibaba is the, you know, certainly the dominant e-com uh, player in China. And of course, Alipay then settles a large majority or Alipay is the payment instrument for a large majority of the GMV on those Alibaba properties. So, so very clearly, a, 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 you know, an e-commerce company with a very strong payments arm. Tencent is a little different insofar as, you know, it is first and foremost a content company, I would say, uh, or a media company. So, so gaming is their primary, um, certainly their primary revenue driver. And of course, increasingly well known for their messaging service, uh, you know, WeChat, uh, which, well, between WeChat and QQ have, you know, 800 million users or about 860 million users. And then from a fintech perspective, you know, actually the latest figures from, from Tencent just from a week or two ago were that of those WeChat users, 600 million are monthly active users of WeChat Pay. So look, both phenomenal powerhouses, but, but quite distinct in terms of their core offering. That's huge, isn't it? 600 uh, monthly active users. Uh, you can see why uh, JP Morgan and the likes are salivating at the prospects of growth for those companies. But it strikes me that uh, hasn't the growth already happened for this? You know, where's the big upside coming from for these organizations? Is, there, is it just the growth in the economy or is there, are there some fundamentals that these companies have in front of them? And is there not some competition in the market as well? Is it a two-horse race for for the lion's share of that market? You know, is there still upside on growth? Absolutely. I mean, you know, China is still in many ways a developing market. So, you know, the, the major cities have been well covered uh, and, and kind of penetration from an e-com perspective is is continuing to grow in some of the major cities, but is at a point at which it's perhaps uh, hitting peak or, or at least will begin to plateau. But then if you look at the rest of the country, I mean, e-commerce is first and foremost a logistics play and, and just connecting uh, you know, many of the tier two, tier three, tier four cities in China, which, by the way, you know, all of whom will have many millions of people. I mean, there's huge, huge potential upside outside of the cities. And indeed, between Alibaba and Financial, Tencent and, and, and various uh, subsidiaries and affiliates, uh, there is a clear focus on this kind of rural growth and rural development. So absolutely plenty of upside. You know, from an e-com perspective, I believe the figure is around 13 and a half percent of all of all retail spend in China. So, you know, significant growth, uh, as in other markets. I mean, I would say on the comp- competition side, you know, certainly it's, it's worth noting that from a payment instrument perspective, I do think that the payments game in, in China is now effectively a two-horse race. If you look at online and especially mobile, you know, TenPay uh, and, and Alipay, you know, really are the, the, the two dominant players. And I don't see any scenario in which, that, in which that's changing, uh, frankly. Now, from a from a e-com perspective, there are other players. JD.com, indeed, is actually, you know, I understand to be the biggest retailer in China uh, from a revenue perspective. Of course, Alibaba is more is larger from a GMV perspective because it's more of a marketplace. So JD.com uh, is a very interesting company. Recently spun out its uh, 
JD Finance arm, which included JD Pay, by the way, uh, for a reported two billion uh, USD to uh, unnamed investors. So, you know, this is another great thing about the China market. I mean, how many how many acquisition spinouts can happen for two billion dollars to unnamed investors? But leaving that aside, you know, they are a very powerful um, e-com player, and indeed they have a relationship with Tencent on, on the payment side as well. So, not necessarily. A one-horse race in traditional e-com for Ali, I would say largely a two-horse race in payments uh, and a one-horse race when it comes to messaging with Tencent. That's pretty significant. So um, is there anything else that people should be aware of um, in the fintech market that these guys have or you know, any challenges that you see coming to those two monsters uh, around the edges? And what are you finding interesting in that space? So challenges uh, in terms of within mainland China, I think, are pretty hard to discern at this stage, just given the scale and speed at which they've scaled. And, and just a lot of the interesting companies coming up now tend to be investee or affiliates of, of these larger players. So, I mean, if you're just to look from, from an follow the money perspective, you know, the, the kind of web of interlocking investments uh, that, that bet- between Ali and Tencent that they're developing in, in the mainland is, is something to behold. So, so I don't see a huge challenge in the near term from like-minded players. I think perhaps the pressure is more likely to come from a regulatory perspective. So again, on the payment side, you know, there's, there's likely to be both development of a, of a third party payment clearinghouse. There's issues around um, additional regulation and so on and so forth. So, so we could see some potential pressures there. I think again, you know, this is one of the, the many drivers relative to, um, to the outbound ambitions of some of these companies. So, Certainly, we've seen Ant Financial slash Alipay uh, making very uh, significant investments, uh, partnerships and acquisitions abroad. I think it's likely we'll see uh, announcements in the coming weeks or months uh, from from WeChat as they again seek to, in particular, follow the Chinese tourists abroad and ensure that, you know, whether you're in London or Paris or New York, you can you can use WeChat Pay uh, to, to, to pay for goods uh and services just as you can now use Alipay in many of these locations. So, yeah, I think the two big trends there are you know, potential regulatory issues, potential pushback from some of the from some of the banks, impacted banks, and indeed Union Pay. And then on the second uh, side of things, uh, around the internationalization, which which has just been immense so far, and, and we see no, no sign of no sign of stopping. So um, I've seen an article in Bloomberg today that um, WeChat is expanding across Europe and they've actually opened an office in the UK to try and win over some major brands. Uh, do you think that internationalization is uh, something that's, yeah, as you say, starting to really gain pace and something that, uh, that will gain a foothold uh, in the West as well? Or is the internationalization really happening kind of uh, in the rest of Asia Pacific and, uh, and, and other regions? Alipay has initially focused on servicing Chinese as they travel overseas. So whether they're students or whether they're tourists or whatever else, and, and then ultimately servicing them when they return home. Uh, I think the MoneyGram deal, which which is still uh, open, as you know, um, so the potential MoneyGram acquisition by Ant Financial has uh, thrown some of people's expectations into doubt because it seems to be um, a much more significant play relative to joining source and destination countries from a remittance perspective and so on. So I think that that has perhaps open people's eyes to, to the more global ambitions for, for Alipay. Uh, WeChat is a little different. They've actually looked to export that model overseas for a number of years, in fact, and have had mixed success in many markets. I think now that this renewed push relative to the announcement you mentioned and, and some, some forthcoming initiatives is really initially 
very similar to the Alipay play, which was let's follow Chinese tourists overseas, let's follow the students, let's ensure that just as they use WeChat Pay uh, on the mainland for, for many of their day-to-day items, similarly they can do that overseas. Now, whether that in itself belies grander ambitions, I think remains to be seen. But certainly there's uh, quite a lot of upside even in that ambition. That makes a whole heap of sense. James, uh, what a fantastic tour of uh, what's going on lately with the big monsters of uh, fintech payments and e-commerce in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, thank you so much for being on FinTech Insider News. Thank you very much, James. And leading to the last story of the week, there's one on Quartz about the world's most secure coin debuting in the UK. This is all about the new pound coin. So I immediately started thinking, oh, crap, I've got a lot of pound coins. Do I need to rush and take these to the bank? But I've been reassured that I've got some time to, to get these to the bank. That, October, apparently, you've got them and I think banks will keep accepting those for some time thereafter. But they get de- demonetized from October onwards. As will most parking meters, shopping yeah, trolleys, or areas of infrastructure that don't get updated. Yeah, so, yeah, if, if I were owned uh, a network of um, car parks and I had to suddenly start upgrading all of those uh, pay meters, that would feel a bit painful. Do you think there's a, there's lobbying by the coin design and minting kind of organizations to uh, uh, and all of the infrastructure around... Uh, cash, you know, cash machines or you know, uh, vending machines, car parks. Because every time that something like this comes along, they must be just rubbing their hands. <laughs> Come on, like, guys! It's been ages uh, since the Tempe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, it makes you think that Mark Carney must be quite concerned about forgeries because we've seen a new five pound note. Now we've seen a new pound coin. So forgeries must new have been twenty pound note. Yeah. So is it not we do it every so often just to refresh the picture of the queen is that not why we do it as well so there are obviously new the most secure coin new fraud measures and all kinds of things hidden in the engraving and so is pound coin fraud a big thing massive is it well okay. no because in this article it says um, you know one in 30 it comes about 45 million pounds and I don't that's not that's what this article says so I, that's my source but that's not I let's get all our pound coins deal, out now right? see if we've got any fake ones like, <laughs> how much money did it cost to put this in place surely it cost more than that to actually make this happen right quite possibly but then you compare that to some of the fraud that goes through the the major banks and some of the headlines because of the the kyc issues you know this is this is a drop in the ocean but then if you're the bank of england you can only control what you can control you can't control everything for everyone else i guess are there any animal products in this coin that's what i'm (laughs) because you remember that five pound note well there's news broke today that they're considering using palm oil in the new 20 pound note which is not a great (laughs) environmental product so uh more trouble I'm really looking forward to Mark Carney dipping this coin in some food just to, <laughs> to show it off. Well, it's like a chip, isn't it? He could uh, he could do guacamole or something. <laughs> yeah, a guacamole pound coin. That's, it feels like Scrooge McDuck and would, would do it and just kind of just a bite on it and it hurt his teeth or something. It'd be, uh, be pretty fun. So, yeah, um, look out for your new... Uh, how many sides has this pound coin got? Twelve. Twelve-sided pound coin. That's that's pretty, pretty robust. You're getting a lot of bang for your... Coin, yeah. Sorry, that one didn't work. <laughs> Alrighty, uh, so that about finishes off for the news this week. Thanks everyone for listening. Of course, if you like what you've heard, tell some friends, get people to subscribe to our podcast, please, um, and leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. That's all for now. <laughs>